God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, today we come hungry for you. As we have worshiped and as we study your word today, Lord, I pray that we would taste and see that you are good. Open our eyes, Father, to see you. Open our hearts to an appreciation of your grace and mercy. And Lord, let us all determine to follow you as king. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard. As we were worshiping there, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm about to talk about apathy. And I was anything but apathetic as we were worshiping today, right? Thank you guys so much. What a blessing. You know, we, we have a tendency to think of apathy as an all-pervasive affliction that affects every single aspect of our lives. But in fact, apathy is selective. It's selective, okay? We, we can be energized in one part of our lives, and then we can be totally indifferent to another. For instance, apathy is probably what you feel about your work the day before your vacation starts. As that day wraps up, you're thinking about hopping on that cruise and enjoying some much-needed peace and relaxation, and so your mind has become indifferent to your to-do list. Apathy is a state of mind where the spark is missing. It's, as, as one person put it, apathy is the get up and go that got up and went. Now from time to time, we, we need to acknowledge that we all experience apathy that should probably be overcome. It's just not something we should settle for. But it is in the arena of the spiritual life that we must not allow apathy to take root. We cannot allow apathy to take root in our spiritual lives. We, we, we have defined apathy, spiritual apathy, as indifference to the things that are critical for our growth and flourishing as followers of Jesus Christ. It is indifference to the things that are critical for our growth and flourishing as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we know that apathy can torpedo our spiritual growth and, and flourishing. So it is absolutely important for us to realize what causes it. Okay, just as a person who has allergies seeks to understand what triggers the allergic reaction so they can avoid it, we need to understand what triggers our spiritual apathy so we can work around it. We need to avoid it if we're going to realize the life that God has created us to live. So God's vision for our life is to live in a state of peace and spiritual fruitfulness, both of which require energy. They both require investment. And if we are indifferent to God's vision for our lives, then because of apathy, 
our journey is going to be compromised. So last week we identified three causes of apathy. And if you weren't here, then I would just encourage you to go back and listen to that talk because it's so important. Remember, if, if you have allergies, you need to figure out what's triggering it. So we identified three causes of apathy last week. One is living in our trivial culture, which elevates the trivial to the detriment of issues that we should care about. Like, for instance, Facebook stories are more important than the gospel story. Okay, that's embracing the trivial. We talked about a lack of self-discipline as a primary driver of apathy. We, we, we don't feed our souls with the bread of life, and we lose our taste for it. Finally, we identified prolonged doubt as a contributor to our apathy. Now, today we're going to finish up by identifying two more causes for apathy. And the first cause of apathy is ambition. Okay, now I would understand if linking apathy and ambition would give you pause. How can ambition, which is defined as an earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction and the willingness to strive for it, how can that kind of earnest desire and work be associated with apathy? How can it cause it? Well, at its most basic level, apathy is indifference, and there is absolutely nothing indifferent about ambition. True enough. I get that. Ambition can be, oh, look, we're back. I know y'all are noticing, so I just thought I'd bring that up. It's working again. Ambition can be a positive force. But some ambition, notably what Scripture refers to as selfish ambition, actually triggers spiritual apathy. Selfish ambition leads to spiritual apathy. Now, I want you to consider two passages of Scripture. I'm going to be going over a lot of Scripture today, and so if you want to grab a note card and write them down, but if you want to turn, we're going to be focused in the book of James on a couple of different occasions. But right now, in, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul forbade acting out of selfish ambition. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Do what? Nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Now, just to be reminded of how he started, what can we do out of selfish ambition? Do nothing. No, we should do nothing that is driven by selfish ambition. The follower of Jesus Christ should never be motivated by selfish ambition. Why? Because selfish ambition always will, always does, always has, violates the law of love. Okay, selfish ambition is a desire for my own well-being, typically established at the detriment of others. It is a desire for some type of achievement or distinction that only benefits me. That's selfish ambition. It does not serve God 
or the good of others, and therefore it violates the law of love. Now the half-brother of Jesus also contributed to this discussion in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Look what he says. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it, but also don't deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom... Now, we're differentiating between the wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom that is entrenched in our culture. Okay, such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, James was addressing the fact that selfish ambition is actually celebrated in our culture as a kind of wisdom. It is something that we should all have. And if you don't have it, then you're pushing against what the world believes is right. The idea is how in the world would you expect to get ahead without selfish ambition? But James' point is that if you're living in the wisdom of God, you will resist selfish ambition, which he calls earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Now what does that mean? That means it comes from darkness. It comes from the enemy. And why should we resist it? Because wherever you find selfish ambition, you will find the fruit of disorder. Think chaos. You'll find the fruit of disorder and every evil practice. That means that when we are consumed by selfish ambition, we will do anything to realize it, to accomplish what that ambition aspires. When we are selfishly ambitious for power, honor, fame, or wealth, we are striving to win, striving to be noticed. And that is the pathway to building our kingdom, and when we are consumed by that kind of distorted ambition, we will always do whatever it takes to achieve the goal. That's why it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Because anything that resists God's agenda for his kingdom to come can only come from the enemy. Now, now I, don't, I don't think I need to tell you this, but that kind of ambition is all-consuming. And it always snuffs out the fires of righteousness. Righteousness. 
But when we are consumed with righteous ambition, we live for the glorification of God and the building of his kingdom. Now, we could just stop right there and identify what we are ambitious for. Can you do that? What are you pursuing? What are you striving for? What dominates your thinking and your time? When we have righteous ambition, the opposite of selfish ambition, all those things that we worry about fall right into place. Do you remember what Jesus said in the message on the mountain? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. See, we get spun around and we think that we have to be ambitious about all these things. But what the scripture says is when we get our ambitions prioritized, when we embrace righteous ambition, then all those other things just naturally fall into place. Okay, you can have ambition in other areas as long as it follows righteous ambition. Okay, you, you, can, you can want to work with excellence. You can have a great family. You can enjoy friends and hobbies. You can inspire, aspire to be a lifelong learner and in general make the most out of life. But those desires should be properly ordered subservient to the desire, to the righteous ambition for the glorification of God. When you have your ambitions rightly prioritized, when you prioritize righteous ambition, you do it for the glory of God. In essence, God is your ambition. Now there is a person in Scripture who personifies this idea. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why? What, what, was, what was different about John the Baptist? Well, he was obviously consumed with ambition for the kingdom of God. His whole life was, ar was arranged to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, and he was an oddball, right? He, he lived out in the wilderness. He wore clothes made of camel hair. He ate creepy crawlies. He was just a weird guy. But what he did, and he did one thing, he did it with excellence, okay? He was a great preacher, he was, he was E.F. Hutton before E.F. Hutton was around. When he spoke, people listened. They left their towns, they left their settlements, and they wandered into the wilderness to find this weirdo who was preaching a compelling message. All of Israel went out to hear him preach about the coming of the kingdom of God. He was very successful in his work, so successful that the king asked him to come preach for him. Now, after Jesus' ministry began to take off, 
people, they, they wondered if John and Jesus, if, if there was some kind of rivalry developing between the cousins. Okay, and so looking for drama, the people approached the baptizer and pointed out that the guy he recently baptized on the other side of the Jordan, that Jesus guy, was amassing a huge following, and he was even doing a little baptizing himself. And it appeared that Jesus was stealing John's sermons because if you read it, he was preaching the very same thing John the Baptist was preaching. And so they wanted to know how John felt about it. They wanted to find the drama. Was John Jesus of jealous, jealous of Jesus' success? Because clearly Jesus was stealing John's crowd. Do you, do you know how John responded? John chapter 3, verse 30, this is what he said. He must become greater. I must become less. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. As other versions famously put it, he must increase and I must decrease. That is the heart of spiritual ambition. It is righteous ambition in a nutshell. When our ambition is properly ordered, we recognize that whatever we do, whatever we're aiming for, the goal of our lives must be the magnification and glorification of Jesus, and it must be the diminishment of ourselves. That is the, the telos. It is the goal of righteous ambition. And when we have righteous ambition, we will sacrifice everything for the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. When our ambition is spiritual, we could never, ever suffer from prolonged bouts of indifference or apathy to the things that will advance God's cause in us or in others. Why? Because it's an all-consuming ambition. That's not distracted by selfish ambition. Now, let me, let me say this one more time. It's important to understand this. How, how does that affect our worldly pursuits? Okay, because you, you, you've known people, they, they say they're, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Like, we don't want to be weird about this. So how does this kind of righteous ambition affect our worldly pursuit? It simply means that we pursue excellence in everything we do because we know that everything is an offering to God. And we always put our best foot forward, do our best, knowing that it reflects wonderfully on the one who we do it for. Okay, so I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination you should not aspire to work hard or work with excellence. Not at all. 
That's one of the ways we glorify God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. Whatever you do, whatever God has called you to do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's what happens when we have righteous ambition. We understand that everything we do is an offering to God. We are serving Christ. And so we do it all with excellence. Whatever we find ourselves doing, we're going to do it to the best of our ability. That's what John did. He even ran off the crowds to follow Jesus because that was his ambition. He was a great man, not because he wanted to be seen as a great man. There was no hint of selfish ambition in John the Baptist. He had a righteous ambition that enabled him to steer clear of the chaos that accompanies selfish ambition. He indeed decreased while Christ increased. That is the objective of righteous ambition. So, Whose increase do you seek? The second cause of apathy that we need to address today is fragility. Okay, there are times when apathy itself is a form of retreat. It's, it's choosing indifference as a way of isolating ourselves from, from pain and hardship and the potential for disappointment. Okay, we, we become indifferent to the things that we think are going to hurt us. To prevent that type of apathy, we have to stop avoiding hardship. We have to stop avoiding hardship and face it. But the reality is our fragility precludes us from doing it. Now, what is fragility? It's being soft. Fragile things are delicate. They are easily damaged. They're frail. And when something is fragile, it must be protected. In his book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder, the statistician Nassim Taleb groups all things into three specific categories. Everything. There's the first category is the fragile. These are things that require protection because they are delicate and cannot heal themselves. Then he says some things are robust. These are things that resist shock and distress and stay the same. And then the third category are things that are anti-fragile. Okay, things that take adversity and stress and actually become better. Taleb writes, some things benefit from shocks. 
They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors. If, and I'm still quoting, if uncertainties are certain and hardships are our common lot, how we respond to them becomes the critical issue. He says, wind extinguishes a candle and energizes a fire. You want to be the fire and wish for the wind. Here's, here's what, when we see ourselves as fragile, then we avoid difficulty and we become candles, unable to handle the smallest puff of air. But embracing difficulty encourages a raging fire in us that is never apathetic. Now, here's what we need to understand. Human beings are created with resilience. That's how God made us. We are anti-fragile because we get better when we embrace the journey of difficulty. We get better with testing. That's what Scripture teaches us. Look at Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Not only so, Paul writes, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produ produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Did, did I hear that right? We glory in our sufferings? In our fragility, we avoid any idea of suffering. But we're supposed to glory in it? We can glory in our sufferings when we are connected with Christ because we are not fragile. We're not. We are anti-fragile. We get better through suffering. Facing it produces, he says, perseverance, character, and ultimately hope. Now what is hope? It is the belief that the future is worth pursuing. Hope is the belief that the future is worth pursuing. When we believe that our future matters and is worth getting to, then we will not be apathetic or indifferent. We will be fully engaged. But if we're fragile and we avoid any thought of discomfort, or if we protect those we love from any hint of suffering, then it's going to lead to apathy. It's going to lead to indifference. Because we're short-circuiting the process to hope, James had much the same message. Look in your Bible at James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. He says, 
Consider it pure joy. Paul says we're supposed to glory in our sufferings. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And you should let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He doesn't say consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you've figured out a way to weasel out of the trial or to avoid the suffering. He says consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, whenever, not if, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He exhorts us to consider trials and sufferings as pure joy. It is the essence, pure joy. So, rather than avoiding grief or physical hardship or spiritual resistance or difficult conversations, rather than minimizing sin or foolishness and its consequences in our lives or minimizing financial setbacks or relational disputes, we should actually embrace the trial, those kinds of trials, with a measure of joy because we know that it is a test of our faith. And when we take those tests... When we have the courage to take those tests, we develop things that will ensure our spiritual flourishing. We develop perseverance. We will not become indifferent to the process of trans being transformed into the image of Christ. We will persevere. We will do what it takes. That perseverance leads us to being mature and complete. That is whole. That is God's vision for our lives. Mature and complete, not lacking anything. What does anything mean? Does that mean God gives us all the toys we want? No, because that glorifies us. What it means is that God will provide everything we need to be all that he has called us to be. He will provide exactly what we need to overcome apathy. We will not lack energy, focus, curiosity, resilience, or desire. All of those things that apathy can rob us of. In short, the message is, don't be fragile. Face hard things and do hard things. Face the truth. The difficult things we avoid won't break us because we aren't anti-fragile. They will only make us stronger and ensure that we are mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if John was the example 
of righteous ambition. Who is the example of anti-fragility? It was his cousin. It was Jesus. There are two statements made in the book of Hebrews about Jesus that we must consider. And Hebrews is one book in front of James. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God... I want you to listen to what he says here. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. You understand what that's saying? Like we think Jesus was perfect because he got it all right. And he did. That says he was made perfect through suffering. His sacrifice was seen as perfect. It was effective, offering salvation to all who would believe because he embraced suffering. And because he embraced suffering and died on the cross, he completed the task perfectly that he was sent to accomplish in order to seek and save the lost and suffering. Jesus had to suffer. He could not live with the mindset of fragility. His suffering made his sacrifice perfect. The writer goes on in Hebrews chapter 12 to expand on this theme. Listen to what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now in Hebrews chapter 11, he's listed all the people who lived by faith but suffered so much they never actually realized in this life the promises of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who did not avoid suffering but embraced it, let us do the same. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run not with apathy but with perseverance the race marked out for us. What should we be looking at? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. did he do it? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He hated the shame that was associated with it. We know when he was in the garden praying that he wanted to avoid the pain, the physical pain that he would experience as he was nailed to the cross. But he didn't avoid it. He scorned the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after he was raised from the dead. Believers should consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. 
We consider Jesus so we won't become apathetic, so we won't avoid the difficulties that God intends to transform us through. Jesus had the joy and the hope of glory before him, but he had to face the difficulties and endure the suffering to get there. And because he believed to the core of his being that he would defeat death, he had joy. He knew what was going to happen on the other side of his suffering. He didn't like what he was going to face. But because he saw what could become of it, he faced it willingly. See, Jesus would not be broken by death. He would break it. Death does not defeat us. He defeated death. The grave has been denied. We are victorious. So what do we do as we walk on this journey, as we follow him? We fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We follow his lead, inviting the one who won the hard-fought victory to be leader and Lord of our lives. And when we are following him, we will not fall into indifference and apathy. We will not give in to the fears of fragility. But we will embrace the difficulty, knowing that in him we are more than conquerors. We will not be broken because the chains that bind us have been broken. Now two questions. Are you a follower of Jesus? Don't be indifferent to this idea. Jesus actually endured suffering, so we don't have to. We don't have to suffer through being separated from God. When he died on the cross, he cried out, suffering, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the forsakenness of God so we don't have to. He took on all the penalty for our sin. He received God's wrath on himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. And so when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, there there is... We don't have to know the suffering of separation from our Creator. We are connected to Him because of what Jesus did. Now listen, that's where it starts. Do not be apathetic to this truth. Do not be indifferent to this reality. Are you going to suffer because you place your faith in Jesus? Maybe. I mean, there might be some people who roll their eyes or talk a little bit behind your back. But you can consider that pure joy. 
because it is the beginning on the road to transformation. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, are you living in apathy toward him? Maybe it's your selfish ambition. Maybe it's because you're avoiding the difficulties of life. Whatever it is, you're compromising God's vision for your life. God has a perfect plan for you. Don't be indifferent toward it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the fact that his ambition was our salvation. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, everyone who is with us online will embrace the sacrifice that Christ offered. Embrace his death as the path to life. Maybe, maybe that's exactly what you need to do today. Maybe today's the day that, you, you know, you've been hanging around a little bit and thinking about Jesus and it, it's, it kind of makes sense, but you're just not quite sure. Listen, don't, don't hesitate between two opinions. If God is calling you to place your faith in Jesus and you're understanding it, let me tell you, that is the beginning of the life you've always wanted to live, following Jesus. He alone is our peace. His is the name that is above every name. His is the name that brings healing, peace, comfort, grace, to us and to those that we love. You place your faith in Jesus, he promises that you'll have eternal life and life abundant. And for those of us who have been following him, who trust him, let's overcome apathy. Let's keep our eyes on him. And let's serve his kingdom. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the possibility of significance. We are grateful for Jesus and what he did for us. In his name we pray.